Um, we're going to take a look, and it's going to be an all-too-brief look relative to what the sugya is, at the sugya of Pesha Asar, or Pesha Itir, a sugya that we already started uh, a couple days ago when we began the study of the second parak, but it really gets fully engaged uh, a little bit later than where we're at, so this is going to be a little bit of a spoiler alert. Um, but the general premise of Pesha Asar, Pesha Atir, and we're going we're gonna to take a look at three things over the course of the next 55 minutes. One of them is the sugya itself, including the examples in our Mishnayot and a critical sugya that's a couple daf ahead of a rat. Um, we're going to uh, investigate um, what some of the reasoning might be behind what's going on and the range of application of this principle in Shas, and it may surprise you. Um, so get ready. In any case, um, I'm going to start with Psukim, even though the Psukim don't seem very relevant, but they, they, they form a possible background, although in the end we actually reject it. In, the, uh, in Parshat Kitetze, you have this Parsha of what we call the Motsi Shemra, the slanderer. And the this case of slander in the Torah is a case of a man who marries a girl, and subsequent to the marriage, he makes the claim that she was unfaithful to him during their betrothal, and, and uh, the fur flies. And it begins as follows. Right? Pasuk Yud Gimel right in front of us in source one. All right. That's his claim. Basically, if you think about it, it's sort of uh, our first Mishnah Ketuvot is a rewording of that, but not exactly. The simple read of that is that they bring out the cloth that proves that she was indeed a betula. And in the first take of this story, the guy is a liar, and we have the consequences of his lie. And the second take is what happens if his claim is true. But we're not concerned with that here. We're concerned with this. Viamar, and this is the bigger, bigger, bolder uh, font. Viamar So the father turns to the elders who are gathered and says, Et biti natati laish hazet. I gave my daughter over to this man for marriage, and then the rest of it is and he decided he doesn't like her, and now he's bad-mouthing her and claiming that she's not a betula. Here she's proof she's a betula, and then the consequences. We're only concerned with the phrase at bitina tati laish hazet. Now we have to remember that from the perspective of both halachically and anthropologically, uh, marriages took place, betrothals took place uh, when a girl was perhaps very, very young. The marriage would take place when she reached puberty, pretty much, but the betrothal was earlier. And the betrothal could only be affected midoraita if the father did it, meaning. If the girl herself did it, she's eight, nine, ten, doesn't mean anything. It's a meaningless act. And if the uh, if the father's not around and some other family member does it, then it doesn't have any halachic power until we get to Kiddushemiyun, which we talked a lot about in Masachet Yevamot, which is in the case of the father's dead. And then we give the other family members the ability to give her protection, but that's not our sugya. So we're talking about a case where the father comes and claims that bitina tati laish hazet. Keep that in mind. We're going to touch back to it fairly soon. But let's start, start with the Mishnah. And I'm going to surprise you here because we're going to look at a Mishnah, not the Mishnah in Ketubot, where the principle of Apesha Asar appears, but rather a Mishnah in Masachet Eduyot. Now, a couple words about Masachet Eduyot. 
because we need to have a sense of what we're looking at and why it's there. Most Masechtot, as a matter of fact, for the most part, all Masechtot that we look at have a common theme. And of course, there are tangents. So the theme in Masechet Shabbat is Melachot Shabbat, but there are a couple of tangents in the ninth parak of things which are Zechel Davar and takes us into laws of Kilaim and and uh, and Poletet uh, Shichvat and several other areas of Halacha. Uh, but for the most part, it stays the course of Hilchot Shabbat. Masechet Eidiot is the one real exception, and it is the round peg in the square hole, because Masechet Eidiot does not have a common theme at all. It's not about testimony. It is testimonies. And Masechet Eidiot, which may have been the first Masechet to be, to be organized, goes back to the early days of Yavne. And what happened was that when the Chachamim gathered in Yavne after the destruction, they realized that they needed to have some testament as to the way things were practiced in the times of the Mikdash, when there was Yerushalayim, when there was a court that had full power, when there was Tumavatara being practiced in its full extent, etc. And what they did was they gathered testimony for different people by name who attested to things that they remembered from the times of the Mikdash, which was recently. And so it is really a potpourri of, it goes through every part of area of halacha. It also has several kvatsim, like there's a kovetz of all the halachot where Beit Shammai conceded to Beit, Beit Hillel conceded to Beit Shammai, right? That, for instance, and all of the places where Beit Shammai is lenient and Beit Hillel is more, is more stringent, etc. Um, and the beginning of Ediot is its own fascination because it talks about why it is that in general, we mention the opinion of, of discarded uh, positions, uh, why we mentioned the discarded position in halachic discussion, etc. In the uh, third parak, as eight parakim, in the third parak, towards the end, we have the following Mishnah. Um, Rabbi Dosa says, a shvuya may eat truma. Now, what does that mean? That means that there's a woman married to a Kohen. And she was taken by some brigands in uh, a roundup, and she was held by them, and she was then freed. She may return any truma, which means we are presuming that she was not defiled by the thieves, by the people who took her. Chachamim disagree with Rabbi Dosa, because Rabbi Dosa just had a broad sweep across and said, any girl's a shvua, she can come back and eat truma. Uh, Chachamim say sometimes yes, sometimes not, or Bill in our famous phrase, it depends. Ketzad, ha'isha sh'amran nishbeti u'tahorani ochelet. Now we are looking right now at the version that's in Ketav Yad Kaufman, which is the famous Ketav Yad that we use all the time. And by the way, in Ketav Yad Parma, which is second only to Ketav Yad Kaufman is reliability, uh, pretty much you have the same nusach. And it says as follows, A woman who comes up and says, I was taken captive and I was untouched, meaning not defiled, but if there are witnesses to the fact that she was taken captive and she says, nonetheless, I was not defiled, then she doesn't eat truma. Now, what's the assumption behind this? That if the woman comes and volunteers the information that she was taken captive, which she didn't need to do, then that gives her credibility for the rest of her statement. 
So that was taken captive, but nothing happened. But if there are a demon she was taken captive, which means she has no, she can't deny her being taken captive, then the statement that she was defiled is essentially self-serving, and therefore we don't accept it. Now, interesting, if you look on the left side, you will see the version of Ediot that you will see in printed Mishnayot, right? And you will see that there's a line added in there that's not in the original manuscripts. Here we go. Again, Rabbi Dosa is saying every Shriya can eat. Chacham says sometimes yes, sometimes not. Kate said, how did that play out? Notice that is not in the original Kitveyad, but that is added in into the printed version, which gives us the suspicion that the printers put it in because they were influenced by the Mishnah in Ketubot, which we're going to see in a moment, because that's our main place. It's just the one line that's in red with the yellow highlight that was added in. And so now let's see, and by the way, this is something that happens often when there are, um, when there are texts that to the un, not necessarily learned eye of the printer, the person setting the print, and he sees something and it doesn't fit with what he's familiar, but he hasn't done all of the research, or maybe he doesn't even have access to the research, then he may correct what he has in front of him. And there are dozens of examples of this. And when I say correct, I put that in air quotes, because he's actually doing the opposite. But let's take a look now at our Mishnayot. All right, our Mishnayot start here in, in Mishnah Bet, in Perak Bet. And remember that in Perak Aleph, because Perak Bet follows Perak Aleph, not just because two comes after one, but because the bulk of Perak Aleph is a series of machlokot between Rabban Gamliel and Rabbi on one side, and Rabbi Shu on the other side, about the woman's credibility when she responds to a claim, what her response is, and what our response is. So the classic, the last example, a woman is pregnant. A woman's not married, she's pregnant. And we say, who's the father? And she says, the father is a kosher guy, meaning that if the baby's a girl, she can marry a Kohen. I can marry a Kohen. I haven't been in any way defiled. Rabbi Gamaliel says, we believe her. And Rabbi Shua says, no, the, the, the assumption is that she had relations with somebody who is not kasher lekuna, a mamzer or a non-Jew or whatever, until she can prove differently. And then we have the following. Umoder Rabbi Yoshua. So Rabbi Yoshua concedes. All right, we've been discussing this in the Gemara these past few days about what the particular cases, what other cases could have been used instead. A person comes and says, this field used to belong to your father and I bought it from him. And a question that I want to just pose now, and we're not going to get to an answer, but it's something to think about, is are these Rabbi Yeshua's words? And the reason I ask that is because, remember Rabbi Yeshua is first generation Yavne. Rabbi Yeshua and Rabbi Eliezer are the chief rabbis in the first generation of Yavne, according, along with Rabbi Gamliel. And if we are reading this correctly in the first two sources, that Apesha Saro Peshitir was not really part of the original Mishnah in Yavne, then that means this may be a later formulation. And there are many who make the claim that proper legal formulations actually come later than the laws themselves. In other words, the law is the law, and the formulation or the formula is something that's developed later. 
So it's possible that Apesha Asar Apeshitir is a later addition. And of course, by the time the Mishnah is composed and compiled, um, it's in there. But again, we, we can't settle that. I just want to think about it. Now, what's Rabbi Yeshua's argument? He says, Apesha Asar Apeshitir, which isn't really on point here, because Asar and Hitir don't relate to financial interactions. They relate to personal status. In other words, a person opens their mouth and the result of their statement, which was initiated by them at no provocation, we're going to get to that later on, is something that puts them in a poor status, one of Isur. However, they follow it with another statement, which then gets them out of that bad status. And we say that's Hitir. And says, since they, had, they were the ones who initiated the statement, they put them in hot water. They're also believed about the other part. Now here it's not peshasar because nobody's nobody is being forbidden. Nobody's status is being challenged, but we're borrowing the phrase and applying it. We're going to see it in a lot of different places. So now what's the case? Manny comes up to Mo and says, Mo, this field used to belong to your father. I bought it from him. Now Mo may know that it used to be along to his father. Mo may actually be claiming the field back, but Mo has not got a star and he's got no adim. He's got no support for his claim that that field belongs in my family. So when Manny comes up to him and says, yeah, it used to belong to your father, but I bought it from him. We believe Manny. That's how Pesha Asar Pesha Yitir. And the second half of this, which is exactly like Chachamim up here with the captive girl, if there are witnesses that conform, that corroborate the fact that this used to be father's field, then my claim I bought it from him doesn't help at all. Now, the Gemara goes through the issue of, well, how long have you been on the field? Do you have chazaka, etc.? Not our concern here, although that's something that we already did go into, into depth in our regular dafshir. Now, we continue, and you'll see that even though, as you could see from the highlight, Apesha Asar is only invoked two more times, it's a principle that courses through the rest of these mishnayot. Ha'idim shamruk tavya deinu huzet. So now there's a star. And Manny comes to court and says, Mo, you owe me $1,000, here's a star. And Mo says, it's a forgery. So Manny goes and finds the two witnesses who, who, who are signed on it. And they say, yes, tavya deinu huzet. Yes, indeed, that's our signature. Nobody forged it. Aval. Anusim hayinu. Ktanim hayinu. Psulei edut hayinu. In other words, the signatures are our signatures, but they're invalid signatures, meaning we were not people who were allowed to testify at the time, for whatever reason, right? We believe them, which means the star is now out. The star is out, and many can't collect. So the same principle. If we have witnesses that there really is their signature, or we have a, a sample of their signature on file in the bait team to which we corroborate their signature, then a non-nemani, we don't believe them anymore, which means the star is valid because we don't need their words anymore. We don't need them to tell us that, the, that that's their signature because we already know it. And therefore, they don't have that boost of credibility, just like we had with the woman. Now, um, Halakha Dalit is is tangential, and we're going to skip it. Halacha hey, however. 
Haisha Shamra, Eshet Ish Hayiti, and this will be the focus of our shir. A woman turns around and says, comes in the Beitin and says, I was married. Ugrushani, however, I got divorced. Naamanet. We believe her. We believe her for what purpose? For purposes of her being allowed to marry a guy. Now, here's the case. A guy wants to marry a girl, right? And some, some people perhaps schlep her in a baiting or in front of baiting, in front of other people. And she says, uh, and they claim, how can you marry him? You're already married. She says, yeah, indeed, I am married, but I got divorced. I was married, but I got divorced. Things change. She's allowed to marry him, and we believe her that she's divorced. And by the way, here, it really is her mouth prohibited her. She said, I was married. Oh, if she didn't say anything, she's single. But she says, I was married. So her mouth made her a sewer. And that same mouth has now got credibility to say, but I'm now okay. I'm, I got divorced. And again, but if there's witnesses that she was married and then she just comes along and says, I got divorced, a non She's not believed. And then the same thing here, and watch how familiar this is. Amra nishbeti utorani. A woman was taken captive, or she comes forward and says, I was taken captive, utorani, and I was not defiled. Ne'emenet. This is exactly chachamim. Shapesh asar hu hitir. And again, this is what I think influenced the printed version in Eduyot. But if there's witnesses that she was taken captive and she says, I was not defiled, a non-nemenet. Now pay close attention to the end of this Mishnah because it's going to play a critical role in what's going to happen here. However, if she already got married and then witnesses came and said whatever they said, I'm leaving it open, then she doesn't have to leave the second marriage. Now, what is this last line talking about? We will assume safely that it's talking about something in Halachahe, Mishnahe. Now, Mishnahe has two cases. The first case is a woman comes along and says, I was married, but I got divorced. She's allowed to get married. If there's witnesses she was married and says, I got divorced, she's not allowed to get married. The second case is a woman says, I was taken captive, but I was untouched. Then she is okay. She's believed. For what purpose? What's the impact of that being believed? Remember, even if she was defiled, that's still rape. It wasn't consensual. So what's the impact of it? The impact of it is if she is the wife of a Kohen, she can return to her relationship with him, and she can also continue eating truma. And even if she's not, if she, let's say her husband died in the meantime or dies, she can marry a Kohen. She's not invalidated from Kuhuna if we accept or take her at her word, right? If, on the other hand, there's witnesses that she was taken captive, good. So now, how do we read the last line? If after she got married, the witnesses came, who are we talking about here? Are we talking about the regular woman who came along and said, yes, I used to be married, but I got divorced and said, okay, well, Peshasar, you can get married. And she marries a guy. And after she marries the guy, witnesses come forward and say, oh yeah, we know she used to be married, which should take away her Peshasar. We say, that's okay. You already married the guy. You can stay with him. 
Or is it talking about the second case where there's a girl who says, I was taken captive, but I was untouched, and we believe her, and therefore she marries a Kohen, or she resumes her relationship with her, with her husband, and then witnesses come and say she was taken captive. Do we say, okay, well, since, since we already allowed her, we don't change anything. Which is this talking about? Keep it in mind, the Gemara is going to deal with it. Okay. Um, that's kind of the base information of Pesha Asar. We're going to see a whole bunch of other cases. The Gemara immediately, and now you'll see why I started with the Psukim. Amar Asi, Minayinch la Pesha Asar, what is the Rav Asi asking? He's asking, look, uh, the rule of Pesha Asar is being utilized here to impact on laws that are Doraita. A woman being, being given status of a, as a single woman and she can marry another guy. That's Doraita. It's a huge things. That means there's got to be some basis in the Torah for this principle. It says, what's the basis? Shinamar. At bitin atati la isha isha the verse that we saw up here with the case of slander. The father says, I gave this girl, the, my, the, my daughter, to this man as a wife. What's the drasha? Laish asara hazehitira. In other words, when he says, I gave my daughter to, now, it, it doesn't work in English. But laish hazeh, if we're going to go really, really, uh, you know, not just literal, but just fundamental about it, will say, my daughter I gave to the man this. Now, that makes no sense whatsoever, and nobody translated it that way. But in Hebrew, at bitin atati laish hazeh. So the first one he says is laish. So he's saying, I gave my daughter to a man, which, by the way, means she's prohibited. I'm declaring she's married. And at that point, if we stop there, she can't marry anybody because she's married to somebody. And we don't know who. And his next word is Hazed. What does Hazed do? It says, oh, that's the guy. Now, that's not what's happening in the conversation. And we're going we're to reject Ravasi in a minute. Ravasi is searching for a Torah source for this principle of Apesh Asar. We don't reject it because we don't like the drush or reject it for a different reason. So, Lama Likra, Sfarahi. We don't need a Pasuk. We have something stronger than a Pasuk. I want, I want to give a three-minute plug for Svara here. It is Svara. What, how would you translate Svara? Probably translate it best as um, reasoning within the context of Torah principles. Uh, Dr. Eliezer Berkowitz wrote a uh, wonderful book about Svara in his, in his book, Not in Heaven. It's basically about the power of Svara. And I'll give you one example it's probably the most sterling example of how powerful uh, Svara is in the halachic framework. Uh, very famous um, um, is we saw this uh, the other day in the Gemara. What are the three things for which a person has to martyr himself or herself rather than violate? What are they? Avodah Zarah. good. Very good. Now, right. Okay. Now, why is a person not allowed to, to do Avodah Zarah to save his life? Because basically, you have to love God with your entire life. You have to be willing to give your life up to show your love for God. Okay. That's one way of interpreting the source, but that's, that's it. How do we know that you're not allowed to violate Gilar Arayot to save your life? 
is because in Parshat Kitetse, not far from the piece that we saw, it talks about the case of rape. And it says, right? The victim of rape is like the victim of murder. I'm not going to go into what the application of that is, but it's a juxtaposition the Torah creates of a rape victim and a murder victim. And then the Gemara says, the Gemara Sanhedrin, Ayindalad says, meaning that the Torah is associating and saying, okay, so we know something about murder, and we're now saying the same thing applies to Gilorayot. What is it we know about murder? We know that you're not allowed to save your life by killing another innocent person, right? Good. How do we know that you're not allowed to save your life by, not kill, by, by killing an innocent person? What's the, where's the, where's, where's the, where's the source for that? And the answer the Gemara gives is, is amazing. It starts by telling a story about Rabbah, that a fellow came up to Rabbah and says, the local, whoever it is, is telling me, if I don't kill this guy, I've got to, I'm going to be killed. And Rabbah says, let them kill you and don't kill him. Why? Svara, it makes sense, meaning it's reasonable. My chazit dama didach who says your blood is redder than his? Maybe his blood is redder than yours. Now, does that mean that we actually have some sort of a calculus and people's lives are worth more, but we just don't know whose is worth more? Or does he mean by that you just can't play God and you can't decide who lives? So you should be passive and let them kill you. The point of it for our purposes is that that means that the prohibition against saving your life by killing another person is based not on psukim, it's based on svara. Svara. And then the Torah says the rule of Gilarayot is based on the rule of murder, which means that not only is svara the source for shvichudamim, you should die rather than kill an innocent person, it also becomes, by transition, by, by transitive property, it becomes the source for not violating Gilarayot. Shows you how powerful Svar is. And back to our sugya, the Gemara says, we don't need a pasuk for Pesha Asar. Svarahi. It makes sense. Why? Hu Asara v'hu Sharila. Now, what is this What is this Svara? So it seems to be saying, look, this girl, in the case of the father talking about his daughter, this girl had an unknown status. The only reason that she has any status that's problematic is because her father, who's the only person who has that, that purview, said, I married her off. So, of course, it makes sense that he can also tell us who he married her off to so we can know who she'd be married to. It's just a reasonable thing. If you're going to give somebody credibility and power to affect the status of another, then you have to have built into that something which also the further explanation of it is accepted, right? And then the Gemara is comfortable with that and never examines it further. It then asks the question, I'm not even concerned about that. It says, well, the pasuk is needed for something else. All right. So we now have the principle of Pesha Asar anchored in Svara. Very good. Now let's take a look at another push on a Pesha Asar. Watch this one. So far we have 
um, a person comes up and says that field used to belong to your father. Nobody else knew about it, including you, perhaps, but you don't have any testimony. And I'm telling you it was, but I bought it from him. We believe you. Witnesses come and say, yes, we signed it, but we signed it uh, with fault and incorrectly. We believe them unless there's testimony that, they, that that's their signature. Critically to our point, a woman comes forward and says, I was taken captive. We didn't know about that. We didn't have testimony to it. She says, I was taken captive, but not defiled. We take her at her word. She's pure. But if there's witnesses, she was taken captive, then we consider her to be defiled. A woman comes along and says, I was married, but I got divorced. And we didn't know she, we don't have testimony she was ever married. Then we believe her about, she generates the information she was married. And then the fact that she's divorced is accepted. If there's witnesses that she was married, then her statement, I was divorced, is not valid, meaning it doesn't carry the weight. All right, watch this further push. Now, not Haiti. A woman comes along and says, I am a married woman. And then she turns around and says, I'm single. Now, this is different. Pluyani gives the implication of never married. Ne'emenet. We believe her. And again, same principle, Pesha Asar. We had no idea who she was. She came in from out of town. She walks in and says, yes, I'm married. And the next day turns and says, I'm, no, I'm, I'm single. We believe her. All right? Now, we have a problem. By declaring that she was married, she already identified herself as Asur. And let me show you an example of that right here. The Mishnah in Kiddushin. Um, right there, source 13. And third parak. A guy comes up to a girl and says, I was Makadeshi. She goes, I don't know who you are. Or I, or I know, but I rejected it. doesn't matter. He claims they have Kiddushin. She claims they don't. Watch what happens. Who asur bikrovoteha? Vihimuter bikrovav. He can't marry her sister. He can't marry her mom. He can't marry her daughter. Why? Because according to his own words, he's married to her. And therefore, all of the implications pan out. However, he she can marry his father. She can marry his brother. Because according to her, they're not married. There's obviously no testimony to it. He's claiming, I gave you Kedushin in front of witnesses. He goes, never happened. Which means we have a principle here, which is Shavya Anafche Chaticha Isura. The man has generated himself as, uh, as an, an Isur. And we're not concerned with the objective truth here. Because if we look at objective truth, we're going to have a collision of realities. We're saying, from his perspective, they're married, and all the implications of that go ahead. And from her perspective, they, they have nothing with each other, and all the implications of that go ahead. So we're not looking at objective reality. We're saying, if you need to, objective, we're going to say they're not married. But he made his declaration, and therefore, perhaps as a subset of Nedder, um, that he can't marry her family members, etc. Okay? And that's what the Gemara here asks back in Source 6. The question is, when the woman said, I'm an Eishet Ish, she identified herself as somebody who's Asur to every other man in the world. By the way, to every man in the world, because she didn't tell us who the guy is. So, so Rav Baravuna says, the, the case we're talking about is where she gives a good explanation for why she said it. 
We're going to hear a great story example. And there you got a clear bright that says that if she says, I'm a married woman, and the next day turns around and says, I'm single, we don't believe her unless she gives a good explanation for why he said it. And here's a good example. Nami. Gdola here doesn't mean fat, and she means important. Shaita Gdola Benoy, she was beautiful. All sorts of guys are hitting on her. This is, by the way, the girl who wears the wedding ring in the bar story, right? Uh, All sorts of guys came up to her and said, oh, will you be my... I'm sorry, I'm already in Mikudesh. Then one day she found Prince Charming and she married him. So they didn't ask her, why do you accept Kiddushin? They asked her, why did you tell everybody that you were, should, the answer should be pretty obvious, why did you tell everybody you're already spoken for? All sorts of lowlifes came up to me to marry me. I, the only way to get rid of them was to say I'm already married. Now I have decent guys coming. I accepted one. So this is, there's a story associated with this, that Usha, which was the stop after Yavne in the north of Yehuda's town, when the when the Sanhedrin had to leave Yavne, the, the first time Yavne had to leave, said when they came to Usha, so this is a good example of an Amatla, which means now, if a woman says, I'm an Eshet Ish, and then the next day says, just kidding, <laughs> too bad, you blew it. He says, I'm an ancient ish because there's some guy was stalking me and he was all around me. So I told him I was married. He said, leave me alone. Hopefully that works. Uh, but I didn't really mean it. You know, she gives a good explanation for why she did it. Then we believe. Her. All right. Now let's go further. So Shmuel asked Rav the following. A woman says to her husband, I'm Anida. And then she turns around five minutes later and says, just kidding. Not really. She says, I'm not Anida. Now, what do we say? Do we say that we're not concerned with the objective reality here. We're concerned with the status for herself that she defined. Do we say she is halachically Anida because she declared herself so, and therefore she can't turn around and become not Anida? Same thing here. If she gives an explanation for why she said it, and we can easily understand that, I was tired, I had a headache, whatever it is, right? And uh, then she's believed. So we said the same principle applies here, which is the amatla. Amatla from the same word as mashal. She goes, there's a saying that she has in, that explains her behavior. So now that means, and this is now not exactly Pasha Asar, and they don't employ Pasha Asar. They don't mention it here. What they mean is when a person declares about himself or herself, a particular status that puts him behind the eight ball, that limits him. And then subsequently reviews that and refutes it. We don't accept that refutation because what we think might have happened is he really is in that bad situation or limited or whatever. And then suddenly wants to not have that be the reality and is trying to wish it away and says, oh, I'm just kidding. We don't believe that. But if you have a decent explanation for why you originally lied and then regard the first statement is untrue, and the second statement is reality. This is not exactly Peshasar, but you understand why it's related to Peshasar. Because it's essentially about 
um, uh, testimony that a person gives about himself or herself, which is two-staged. And the two stages are at odds with each other. And the question is, do we accept none of it? We have not yet seen an example where we accept none of it. Do we accept all of it or do we just accept the first part? And that's where the, 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 the borderlines go. Okay. Now, I want to show you one other thing because again, remember I mentioned with the Mishnah with Eduyot that that line seems to have been added in even though it may not have been part of the original Mishnah. Hapesha, sorry there. Now we're going to see something even more fun. All right, in the Gemara, on Daf Chav Gimel, Chav Gimel Amad Aleph, you have, um, the first line is just there for, as a place marker. You see the second line in source seven? You'll see it, I underlined it, All right? This is the piska that the printers put in. You know, in, often in the Gemara, the printers will put in a few words or a line that's a quote from the Mishnah with two dots so that you'll know what's going to be discussed, right? So we know the discussion is about that line, right? That's a printer's thing. That's not part of the original Gemara. It's a printer's thing, although it already showed up in Kitvayad. So it's not just printers. It's pre-printing, but it's not part of the original of the original Gemara. Now, the Mishnah at the end said, We said, if the woman already got married and then the witnesses came, then she doesn't leave. The Mishnah said that that was the last line of the Mishnah. Watch this very confusing statement. Rabbi Oshaya matni la aresha. Rabbi Oshaya learned this statement as being a comment on the resha. Rabbi Bar Avin matni la seifa. He learned it as being a comment on the seifa. Which statement? Now remember I asked you when we learned this in the Mishnah. It says that if, um, if she already got married and then the witnesses came, she doesn't have to leave. Which case is that referring to? Is that referring to the woman who says, I was defiled? I was, I was taken captive, but not defiled? Or the woman who says, I was married, but got divorced? Which one of those? Because in both cases, if there are witnesses, that scotches her, her credibility. So, which, so it sounds like Rabbi Shaya, and taking a look at the structure of the Gemara with that little piece, the underlying piece there, Sounds like Rabbi Shai and Rabbi Abravin are disagreeing about which part of the Mishnah. Is it the captive girl or the married girl? Is this a comment on? And the Gemara continues. If you learn this as being a comment on the Reisha, you will certainly apply it to the Seifa. Why? Right? Because um, uh, we are lenient when it comes to a Captive girl, right? When we're always trying to be lenient with captivity. It's a horrific enough thing itself. We're lenient. I'll suggest later another reason why we're lenient. But if you learn it as this comment on the seifa, then it's not true about the ratio. In other words, Rabbi Shaya would learn this as being about both parts, and Rabbi Abravin would only learn it as being about the seifa. Right now, in the interest of time, I want to just point out point something to you because we're going to. I'm already looking at the, the clock. If you take a look at sources 8, 9, and 10, you can see the same Gemara. You see it? 8, 9, and 10. I put that same place marker as the first line. Again, it's not part of our sugya, but I put it there so you know where we are. You see it at the beginning of 8, the beginning of 9, the beginning of 10, all the same thing? Everybody see it? Okay. Mm -hmm. 
Good. Now, I want you to look at the second line in each case. What's the second line in each case? Remember, up here, the second line was the, the addition to tell us where we're, where we're discussing. Good. However, take a look here. In this is the very famous Munich manuscript, Munich 95. All right. It what what are the two words from the Mishnah that they put in here? Amra Nishbeti, which is the very beginning of the Mishnah, right? And in this, which is Vatican 112, right? Amra Nishbeti Utarani. And by the way, the same thing here, which means in all of the, almost all of the really reliable manuscripts, this line right here is not there, but rather the beginning of the Mishnah is there, which means maybe we have to look at this entire thing differently. But take a look at the, the following. I want to introduce you to somebody for a couple of minutes, and then we're going to take a look at his comment here. We don't often get the opportunity in regular shear or in our, in our dive shear to study about the Geonim. So a couple of words about the Geonim, and then uh, a couple of words about Rav Chofnigon and about his work, and then we'll take a look at what he said. The title Gaon has nothing to do with genius. That's actually an interesting etymological uh, journey. Uh, but the title Gaon in Tanakh means pride. And Gaon developed somewhere probably in the 7th or 8th centuries into the title of the heads of the yeshivot in Babel. So the full title of the head of the yeshiva was uh, the name, right? Reish Metivta Gaon Yaakov. Right? And for short, Gaon, Gaonim. And so therefore we referred to people with that position as Gaon, like Sadia Gaon, Roshura Gaon, Right, uh, Gaon. Uh, this, by the way, what happens is that we think about the period as the period of the Gaonim, and we're not realized Gaon's a title, and therefore anybody famous from that period we usually call Gaon. So, like Rav Achai Gaon, who was not a Gaon, and uh, and and others, sort of get that title. But we actually have a very good record of who the Gaonim were uh, because of Rav Shrira Gaon's famous letter. That's the history of the of the period all the way from the Mishnah, all the way through the Gaonic period. And um, there were two yeshivot. Chaim Salvechik has a position he's been pushing for quite a while, that there was a third yeshiva in Babel. There two main yeshivot, the yeshivot of Surah and Pumbadita. Right? And Surah and Pumbadita, by the way, were no longer in Surah and Pumbadita by the ninth century. They had already moved because of the Muslim conquest into Baghdad, but they were still operating as the two yeshivot, and each one had its Gaon, uh, and uh, and that was the that was the head of the yeshiva. Parenthetically, even though the Gaonate continued in Bavel into the um, we think 12th century, and by the way, there was also a Gaonate in Eretz Israel, what we call the Palestinian Gaonim. Um, nonetheless, the real the the the, the, pow the powerful position of, of Gaon was only in Bavel and. That sun set in the year 1038 when the last of the very famous of the Gaoni, Rafai Gaon, uh, passed away. Uh, he was the Reish Metifta of Pumbadita. And the Gaonim actually had quite a prodigious literary output, at least some of them did. However, much of it was lost to us. And there have been lots of uh, attempts and successful attempts in the last hundred years 
to revive both interest in the, in the text of the Gonim and to recover the text of the Gonim. And much of that is Geniza research also. Um, why am I mentioning that? Because the star of today's shiur um, is Reb Shmuel Reb Chofni Gaon. Reb Shmuel Reb Chofni HaGaon, who was a uh, who was from the lineage of the Gonim of Surah. He himself was the Rosh Shiva of Kumbadita. Um, actually, it was the, he was from the Pumbadita family. He was the Gon Surah, and you could see his dates there. He was very near the end of the of the period of the Gaonim that we talk about. He died in 1013. He was a Gaon. He was appointed in the year 998. Uh, uh, so he was a Gaon for the last 15 years. He wrote lots and lots of works. He wrote halachic monographs, which, by the way, was typical in the, in the Gonic period. A number of the Gaonim wrote halachic monographs, meaning an entire work on one area of halacha, uh, always reflecting the Babylonian tradition and, and approach to learning. Uh, he wrote commentaries on Tanakh, uh, some of which are, uh, are quoted widely. His commentary on Sefer Shmuel we have available, and it's fascinating stuff. Um, and in one of the monographs that he wrote, that he composed, which was which is uh, in, it's called Sefer HaGerushin, right? That's about Gitin. He quotes our Gemara. Now watch what he does. It is just great. Perush Amram, Rav Hashem Atnila Reisha. Here you see it in Source 11. In other words, Rav Roshaya's opinion was that refers to the first halacha, which is Woman comes and says, I was married, but I got divorced. We believe her. But the second chacham, that's the way he reads it. In other words, what he says is as follows. Going back to our Mishnah. Right here. Mishnah Hey. That Rabbah Bar Ramoshaya says, Exactly that way, which means that the woman does have credibility when she comes forward and says, I was married but got divorced. Um, and based on the principle of Peshasar, and Rabbi Barvua says, No, that statement's only being made about the second half, which is the woman was taken captive. Now, let's see, just to cut to the chase, what that would look like in the Mishnah. And here we go. According to Rabbi Shaya, what does the Mishnah look like? Basic our Mishnah. But what does it look like according to Rabbi Baravua? This is Rishwab Barachafni Gaon's take on it. Boom, finished. A woman comes up and says, I was married, but I got divorced. All we believe is that she's married and there's no Peshasar here. But if she says, I was taken captive and I was not defiled, and if there's no witnesses that she was taken captive, then indeed um, she's believed. And he explains why in his introduction to that section in Sefer Rushin. Anu Omrim, source 12. Ki divreha isha kasher amra. When a woman says, eshet ish hayiti. Vuhu I was married and my husband divorced me. 
And it's wild because this is a 10th century work that sounds like uh, a 19th century work in its sophistication and formulation. The first part of what she says is, um, I was married. That is her concession, her admission, her acknowledgement. And the second part is when she says, He divorced me. In other words, he takes the words of every Pasha Asar and turns it into two parts. But he doesn't just say one part is the Asar and one is the Hitir. He says the first part is an acknowledgement of a status or an act which puts you behind the eight ball. And the second is a claim where you're claiming something that will get you out of the eight ball, get you out of the hole. That's what's happening here. So now let's take a look at that Mishnah and see what the reasoning would be for splitting it. Think about this. And this is something that I mentioned earlier that I was going to suggest um, as, uh, as what is likely going on here. If a woman says, I was taken captive, but I was not defiled, is there anything inherently contradictory in her statement? Only that's against the human nature of most Rashaim to leave right. her alone. Right. right. But is there anything inherently contradictory? No. No. What if a woman says, I was married and then got divorced? That actually speaks directly to a contradiction. It doesn't mean she's wrong. But what it means is that her first statement makes her not divorced by definition. Ancient I, means, what? I was married. Agreed. Now, right. Agreed. But remember, there's a difference. I was taken captive doesn't mean at any point I was defiled. It doesn't mean that. It means I was vulnerable, maybe, but I wasn't defiled. A woman says I was married. Right away, that puts her in a status of not divorced, which means nishpeti utaharani is not a uh, a um, a contradiction in terms, and it's not a um, uh, backpedaling on, on a statement. is backpedaling. It doesn't mean it's not true. And you're right, Haiti is different than Ani. Well, but Rabbi, I'm say, say it a different way. I, I think I understand you. Is that the, the, the married woman, her second statement totally negates the first statement. Exactly. Whereas, whereas the, the Shvuya, the second statement is an addendum. It doesn't, right, it doesn't exactly. contradict the first statement. I was taken captive, nothing happened. Okay, nothing happened. It happens that nothing happens. It happens probably often. Maybe not in most of the cases, but it's not a built-in reality. The built-in reality of married is you're not divorced. Exactly. And so therefore, Rabbi Baravuha is suddenly, according to Rabbi Shmuel Barachafi Gon, take, and by the way, Rabbi Shmuel Barachafi Gon was the only one to take this position. All the other Rishonim interpreted this thing about Rasha and Sefa differently, which is why the Maharshal in the, in, the 17th, in the 16th century, the Maharshal came along, Rabbi Shmuel Shlomo Luria came along, and in his commentary on Ketubot said that these are mistaken, and rather it should read like this in the Pisgah. 
and made this whole discussion not about extending Pesha Asar, but about the rule of in what case do we say if the wit if she already got married, even though the witnesses come, she doesn't have to leave, which totally changes everything about the sugya. But that's because he wasn't wasn't familiar with Mishra Machafigon's um, explanation to this. Now, again, what would be the reasoning for dis- for the reason for us to distinguish between the two is because in the case of the Shvuya, we say we're lenient with the Shvuya. Why are we lenient with the Shvuya? So one reason may be because Nebuch is a terrible situation and she didn't do anything of her own accord, etc. And it was common, etc. There may be another reason for it, which because is, which is there's nothing inherent in being a Shvuya that makes you a Surah. It's just what likely happened or may have happened. Eshadish is not the same thing. If a woman says, I'm an Eshadish, the next day she says, I'm single. She says, I'm Eshadish, but I got divorced. Um, anything of that sort is a new level of Peshasar. It's really giving her a lot of power to essentially re- retract not her previous statement, but the implications of her previous statement. Whether it was Shvuah, nothing of the sort is happening. I have actually about two minutes. So I'm, I'm, I'll am I'm. tell you right now, I think that we should make this a two-parter because um, uh, there's so much more to t- talk about here. But if you take a look here on this next page, you will see that Apesha Asar is utilized in all sorts of places. I'm going to give you just three quick examples here. First is the Mishnah in Demai. Demai, it talks about Trumot and Masrot. Hamocher perot besuria v'amar mishal eretz Yisrael hein chayav laser. So a guy is selling perot in Surya. Surya has a unique status as vis-a-vis Trumot and Masrot, and, and he says, these perot that I'm selling actually came from Israel. He has to separate Masrot. You notice what he said? He said it from Israel. But if he says, I got it from Israel and I took Maser, we believe him. Why? You see why? Because if he had said nothing, and again, what's the psychology of it? If the person wanted to lie, they could have said nothing. Right? And therefore, and 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 so I want to show you one other example. Um, um, again, all with uh with having to do with in Dmai, the, the attendant uh, Tosefta here, but I want to show you another example from Baba Metsia. We've done, done the laws of Ishut, we've done uh, personal status, we've done with purchases. Now take a look at this. When you own up to a debt, um, then uh, then that's like 100 witnesses admitting it, uh, testifying to it. That's when somebody else makes a claim and you assent, you acknowledge that you have the debt. If you came on your own without the guy saying anything and said, yes, I owe you money, you can actually change your mind. Why? Look at how far the range of Pesha Asar uh, and Peshitir is. And now you look in this, the last example I'm going to take a look at in um, in Tosefta and Master Shani, which is not doing Master Shani if you take a look. Amarlo Koves, Talit Zushala Some dry cleaner happens to have a Talit lying around. He comes up to me and says, by the way, this used to belong to your father. Right, which okay, well And I bought it from him. Neaman, why? just like in our Mishnah with the land. If there's witnesses that used to belong to my father, then he's not believed. Now, 
What's the upshot of all of this so far? Put a bookmark in here. What's the upshot of all of this? Is that the principle of a Pesha Asar has a range which seems to be the subject of some dispute. How far do we take it? Do we allow you to say something and then contradict it? I'm married. No, I'm not. And believe you, because if there's no other corroborating testimony or evidence that you were actually married, then we're just going to have to either believe everything or nothing. Either way, you're single. Or do we say, now that doesn't work because the minute you said you're married, you're married, and the rest of it we can't accept. We do see that the one place where, where, where it applies, according to everyone, is the case of the shvuya, and that seems to be because, like I suggested, there's nothing inherently contradictory of saying Torani, which is you're not contradicting the previous statement. Um, again, there's much more to look at, and there's a, 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 a very important passage in the Shita Mekubetza that we're going to look at next time. Along with that, I'm going to add some more sources. We're going to look at the issue of Migo and Mali Shaker and see whether or not they play the same role as Hapesh Asar or they don't. Um, ask, ask a question. Yeah, give me one second 